Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Take your Bibles and open them to Jonah chapter 4. The title of today's sermon is a divine lesson on justice and mercy. Let me read our verses that compose our study this morning. I want to start in verse 4 <clears throat> to the end of the chapter. It reads this. It says, The Lord said, Do you have good reason, speaking of Jonah, to be angry? Then Jonah went from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he says, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for our time in the Word this morning. It, as always, it, it pierces our thoughts. It drives us to action. It is word that is eternal and holy, and the Spirit uses to get our hearts right. And so we ask, Lord, that you will continue to teach us as we end our study and yet know the application of such truth has a continual effect as we continue to live. But my prayer, Lord, is that we learn that we learn more about you and, and we understand the significance of what we think about you and what you do, that it would cause us to have actions in our heart. We marvel at your grace. We embrace your grace. We proclaim your grace. All from the compassionate heart of a God who demonstrates a love that is so immense and beautiful from the cross. 
And so we ask that you will be with your teacher and be with our souls as we learn from your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Apostle Paul's opening words in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 22, serve well as a heading for our study this morning. There Paul says this, it says, Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. The final section in Jonah is a divine lesson exploring the relationship between justice and mercy. Or as Paul says, kindness and severity. Both find themselves in the character and the person of God. And from a human perspective, these two attributes often appear to be in tension with one another. We'd rather have kindness, wouldn't we? We'd rather have mercy. And yet, just on the, in the scope of understanding of God, we must understand that both justice and mercy, they're not competing for God's attention to be delivered to God's people. They are one. In the midst of this great God, when we think about God, he does have both justice and mercy. It's not one or the other when it comes to God. They are both part of his divine attributes. And the danger for us as Christians is that when it comes to thinking about God and his character, we like to think about him as a smorgasbord. You guys have gone to the buffet. I think they're maybe starting to become open. There's a reason why it's a buffet. You get to choose what you want to eat on that given day. And if you're like me, you leave the spinach and the cranberry sauce for others. We like to think of God as a smorgasbord of only the attributes that we like. We only like the things that are, are maybe even more beneficial for us, and we leave those other attributes for, for those who are evil or against the holy God. And unfortunately, we often do this. We, we like certain attributes of God more than other attributes. You have churches that, that promote just love and leave it there. And they want you to be accepting of everything. They want you to be tolerant of their sin. Why? Because they have championed one attribute of God over all the others. Is God loving? Yes, he is. But within context of his divine character, you cannot leave out the wrath and justice of God. Well, this is exactly what happens to Jonah. Jonah is expecting God to show one of his own desired hand-picked attributes. He wants God's justice against the sinner, in this case, a sinful city. He wants it to be put on display against one of his enemies, the Ninevites. And what does God do? He does just the opposite. Jonah points and pouts, and he points out to the fact, God, you do have justice. Why aren't you bringing it? He's angry, according to verse 1 of chapter 4. Scripture tells us in, in, in the Hebrew that he's exceedingly angry. He wants God to answer him. And like we saw last week, God answers him. In a rhetorical question, 
Rightly so, the creator says to the created, says, do you have any good reason to be angry, Jonah? Do you? And of course, the answer is no. No, Jonah, you don't have any validity of being angry when I show mercy when you think I should show justice. Reminds me of the scripture where it is expressed that, that we are the clay and who are we to say to the molder? to do this or to do that. And then you will notice at the the end, the the last verse of this chapter of this book, it ends abruptly, which is pretty remarkable because I think it it just leaves us there without any understanding of what Jonah does with God's answer. We'll talk a little bit about that. But it ends with another rhetorical question that, that pierces Jonah's heart when he says, should I not have compassion, verse 11, on Nineveh? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? I mean, Jonah goes to the school of divine theology and attributes of God and comes out very humbled. And in all fairness to Jonah, like I've, I've been preaching through this book, in all fairness to Jonah and his heart, I think it's safe to say we too join the chorus of displeasure at times. Especially when we see all the evil that is around us and all the evil that's, that's seeming to have its way in our society. Who seem to have the, the upper hand. And we join the chorus of laments and we, and we cry out by saying, How long, O oh Lord, will you allow this to tarry? Why haven't you brought your justice? Why are they allowed to continue in their evil ways? And when we sense the justice of God to be withheld longer, by the way, than we think it should, we grumble and we complain and we ask God, why? In Jonah's case, he is tired of asking why. He is pressing God in prayer to act immediately and show his hand of justice. But here's the danger and questioning God to display his attributes according to our timetable. And I hope you're listening here because this is so important. The danger is that such questioning of God may turn our hearts into bitter resentment of God's grace when that grace was once our source of joy. Bitter resentment to God who has made our joy complete in Christ through his grace. We become bitter at God, the one who brought it to us because he is not doing and bringing justice. I mean, this is remarkable about our study in Jonah. A prophet of God who is so bold to discuss with God his disappointment. He doesn't even try to hide his resentment. I think you and I, we try to kind of, you know, in such gentle words, but yet trying to force God to do what we want him to do. For Jonah, he fashions God into the one who is the problem here instead of himself. Instead of rejoicing that God is the answer that the Ninevites need, they need grace, they need mercy, he complains. The apostle Peter addressed this. If you think about Paul or Peter when he addressed the, the saints there who were experiencing great persecution. He addressed this danger of their own hearts when he helped those being persecuted at the hands of godless and evil men in 2 Peter. And this is a great verse for you to write down, and you can see on the screen. 
2 Peter 3, 9 and 10, Peter says this, the Lord is not slow about his promise. That's some would count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and with a roar and with the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. It's a pretty remarkable couple of verses when you think about it. Peter's exhortation focused on the frustrations of God's people that, that we often have when the patience of God's wrath is being held back. From our minds, it's too slow. And for that matter, we think God needs to balance out his attributes a little bit more and show his justice. And often in our grumbling and complaining, we pray to God and let him know that you know what, God, you need a better persona. You're not representing yourself. You need a a character makeover so that we can highlight these things that you greatly have. Of course we think that. Especially, and get this, especially when we are on the other side and and enjoying God's grace. You ever notice that about yourself? I don't want justice when I was a sinner outside of Christ. I only want justice when I'm in Christ so I can watch from afar. When we have experienced the grace of Christ and have our eternal state secured, it seems like our our complaints become louder and louder against the evil of this world. We want justice. However, beloved, having this type of attitude is not a a sign of godly maturity. If anything, it shows us wanting to, to grow more in Christ. Why? Because having an impatient attitude towards God, his truth, and his attributes, and wanting God's wrath, which will come according to his timetable and not ours, is actually exposing an inward selfishness of our devotion to God. And not only being selfish, but even losing sight of the bigger picture. And I think sometimes we lose that. Losing the bigger picture of God's redemptive activity according for his kingdom. Listen, God wants people to come to his son and repent and believe. That gives him most glory. A couple weeks ago, I was at a football field of all places, ran into a a previous coach in my previous sinful days. And I've ran into him throughout the years and throughout time, and he's getting older. And he looked at me that day and says, Bear, I don't know what happened to you, but I can tell that you're a changed man. Which is kind of humbling, right? You're thinking back to yourself, what in the world did I do to make him think that there's a radical change? Well... Of course, I told him it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about Christ transforming a a person that was heading towards destruction and in the crosshair of God's wrath, but by the mercy and grace of Christ is the only reason that he can transform a sinful heart. I think it's also helpful to understand the only reason that you and I still have breath, that we're still here, the church is still here at this time, It's because the redemptive door is still open. Remind yourselves of that. 
remind you of yourselves, when you're thinking about wanting God's justice upon the evil, God is gracious to withhold his wrath in such a way because the redemptive door is still open. That, that he still has a timetable in his own mind. God, who's outside of time, has this idea of when he's going to send Christ back, and the day of judgment will happen. It will happen. That's what Peter says. Listen, God is, is slow to his wrath and to his anger. But the next verse in verse 10 says, listen, the, the day of judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. God will receive his, his due justice in the courtroom, and yet in the meantime, while we are still here, the call for us as re, redeemed believers is to proclaim and throw seed. Proclaim Christ and throw seed of the gospel. For those who are saved, redeemed, about with the blood of Jesus Christ, what we know now, the salvation that we experience now, we should want on even our vilest of enemies. We'd want them to repent. Why? Because we understand the true justice of God. We understand what is going to happen in the end, the eternal condemnation and wrath that will await those who reject Christ. Oh, I get it. I want to I want a wand, do you not? I want a wand to be able to say, God, I want your justice here. I want you to zap that blasphemer now. But were you a blasphemer before you came to Christ? We want to use God according to our bidding. But the greater desire of our hearts should be towards that sinner that needs Jesus Christ. For them to receive the grace and mercy that you experience, for them to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's why I love this passage in, in 2 Peter. Matter of fact, keep your, your, your hand in, in Jonah 4, but I want you to turn forward and see this with your eyes. You already saw it up on the screen. But turn forward to 2 Peter, because I want you to see something pretty interesting coming out of the text. Second Peter, chapter 3. Verse 9. Look what it says there. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. And then it says, but is patient towards the sinner. Is patient towards everybody else. Is that what it says? What does it say there in the text? But is patient towards you. Our Lord is patient with our grumbling and our wanting to have justice. And Peter points that out, that, that the patience that God has, even though it looks like he's showing great patience towards a sinner, he, he is actually saying it's patience towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It's pretty remarkable to think about that, that God is, even in the midst of our complaining of wanting justice, that he has even given us grace and mercy, the thing that we don't want to share with anybody else. 
God's justice will have its day in court. We can count on that. But the reason you and I are still here is so that we can proclaim Christ and be a light for Christ. And if God is slow, at least in our eyes, to, to bring justice, shouldn't that be our desire as well? Shouldn't that be our long-suffering? Even though the, the, the assaults come your way, shouldn't we be long-suffering, wanting to pray for our enemies in, in not a justice type of a way, but in a grace type of way? That, that Christ would open a heart and transform a wicked sinner. When Peter spoke of God's patience, he speaks of it as directed not to the sinners, but to us. And again, I think that it's there to remind us of the grace and mercy that we experience ourselves, that we need to be patient, that we need to allow God to do what he knows best. And by the way, doesn't God always know what's best? He does. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully here. I'm not saying we accept or absorb the sins of sinners that they want us to tolerate. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we look the other way. Just as Peter says, God is patient with us, so his redemptive plan can come to completion, and God, who is outside of time, has the time that will, that will be done, and everything will be done, according to Romans 11.25, when all the Gentiles have come in to the fold. He knows that number. He knows what that looks like. But I want to remind you, 2 Peter 3.10, the next verse, judgment will be coming. The day of the Lord is judgment day for the world. Beloved, God will not bear with sin indefinitely. His justice will come, but it is in his timing and not ours. And by the way, judgment did come to Nineveh. What do I mean by that? Jonah prophesied to Nineveh roughly in 760 B.C. According to verse 11 of Jonah, God showed his grace to over 120,000 people, 1,000 souls. But 100 years later, God sent another prophet by the name Nahum, who roughly in 660 B.C., God brought his justice on a different group of people, yet in the same city, and justice came upon them. The city that God spared and showed grace to, in the book of Jonah, God destroyed with justice in the book of Nahum. And so contrary to Jonah's fears, Yahweh's mercy does not over-trump his justice. It just postpones it, which is very important for us to understand. Like we read in the book of James, it gives us a great reminder of all this when James says in that, that last verse that we read in our pastoral prayer, James 2.13, where it says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So God has us here in this world, yes, growing in our Christ-likeness and maturity in Christ, yes, but also for the reason to be a gospel bearer, an ambassador for the things of Christ. Which, by the way, when you share the gospel, a biblical gospel has what judgment in it, does it not? 
Does not the biblical gospel call the sinner to repentance and their need for a savior? That's why in the book of Romans, the word of God tells us that man is without excuse. Creation points to the fact there's a creator. Your rejection of the gospel and the condemnation of your own sin will bring judgment against your soul. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, it assaults the sinner's heart and makes it call out for a Lord and a Savior who can bring grace and mercy. And the good news is wrapped up in Jesus Christ to be able to do that. All of that sets up our narrative, and I kind of have a long introduction. I can't even see the clock. You guys are in trouble. <laughs> All that to say, it sets up what, what flows, and this narrative kind of wrestles with this, and, and God is so kind to interact with Jonah and give us an eternal look of how this divine justice and mercy go hand in hand with God's purposes and plans. But we notice first in, in verse 5 here in our text that, that Jonah has a poor response to God's justice and mercy. Just listen to what he does here. He doesn't say a word, right? He doesn't respond back to God according to verse 4 when God asked him, do you have any good reason to be angry? Verse 5 says, then Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. I mean, you can see what Jonah's doing here. He's, he's setting up shop. He's going to the movie theater. He's buying popcorn. And he's hoping that his pleas for justice will happen, that he's changed God's mind in such a way that he will respond according to Jonah's wishes. The indication of the Hebrew here is, is that Jonah believes that God will do what Jonah wants in destroying Nineveh. I mean, that's, you can almost just see this prophet of God who, who, who just is, is reveling the fact that justice is going to come and rain hellfire and brimstone upon this city. He's so blinded by his own desires that he cannot see the joy of 120,000 souls. Can you imagine on a day of 120,000 souls repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, what joyous occasion, knowing that their sins have been forgiven? He's blinded by all this. Now, there's a connection in the text with Jonah going eastward that we see this in the book of Genesis. That same movement in the book of Genesis, you see as man's departure from God's will. What do I mean by that? For example, Adam and Eve's removing from the Garden of Eden leaves the banded couple heading east of paradise. It says in Genesis 4.16, Cain, after killing Abel and God talking to Cain, it says there, it says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In Genesis 11.2, it points to the builders of the Tower of Babel actually heading eastward when they decide to stop and build this tower. According to Genesis 13.11, it says of Lot separating from Abraham. So Lot, and it says there, so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus, they separated from each other. So we see this connotation of, of when man is is is, is departing from the plan and the will of God, 
you get this directional um, motif of, of, of heading eastward. All that is doing is that the writer is showing us that, that, that he's, he's pointing to the condition of Jonah's heart by giving us an eastward movement of Jonah. It says there in verse 5 that Jonah erects a hut, a shelter for shade, for getting out of the hot sun. I mean, the text is very clear. The purpose is why he builds it. And two, to see what God will do with Nineveh. Now, the reason, like I said, Jonah is waiting to see what happens is because Jonah is thinking that his prayer had great influence over God. So he's waiting to see what happens. And by the way, something does happen. God shows up, and he teaches Jonah a divine lesson on his divine mercy and justice. And this is what follows. You look at what happens starting in verse 6. So the Lord, Yahweh, God, appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Isn't that kind of a sad testimony? He's more excited about a plant that God provided than the souls of sinners. It's pretty remarkable to think about this. What's also important to note the word appointed, we saw that already in verse 17 of chapter 1 of Jonah when, when God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The same word is, is going to happen over and over again in these next few verses. As God is showing his sovereignty over what he is doing to teach Jonah. God wants us to understand that he is sovereignly behind all of this and the appointing of both the fish and the plant. God uses, get this, to deliver Jonah. The fish was an act of, of mercy for Jonah. The plant was an act of mercy for Jonah. And so God again shows his compassion and grace to Jonah. And of course, Jonah soaks it up. Matter of fact, you can almost get the sense that he thinks he deserves it. And then we see how Jonah responds to, to God's compassion and grace. It says at the end of verse 6 that Jonah was extremely happy. That's in parallel to verse 1 when he was what? Extremely displeased with God's relenting. But here he's extremely, greatly happy that mercy was able to become upon himself. And so when God's mercy and grace was extended to Jonah's enemies, it was dis displeasing to him, but when it was shown to him, he, he soaked it up. Next stage of God's divine object lesson for Jonah, it says in verse 7, look with your eyes there, it says, but God appointed, there's that word again, appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. The plant was used for Jonah's compassion, to show him compassion, to show him grace, to show him mercy. And when we think about the worm, the worm is used as a tool to point to his judgment. How do we know that? Often this wordplay is, is played out in the Old Testament. We think of Job 25.4 through 6 where it says, How then can man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, the ma that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? Speaking about... Man's 
standing with a holy God. Man stands in judgment. Then I think of Deuteronomy 28 where it says there, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among the, all the peoples where the Lord drives you. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. And you shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. Why? Judgment for the worm will devour them. And so the worm often symbolizes death in the grave. And no wonder Jonah is driving himself and, and conveying that he wants to die again. Now, the point of the worm's attack on the plant is to demonstrate the effect of God's judgment over mercy. He wants to put Jonah in the same spot that, that, that he wants for Nineveh. He wants Jonah to experience the, the very same scenario that he wished upon his enemies. And of course, that is the withdrawal of mercy. Thus, the plant was killed. And the execution of God's justice. Just as the plant brought Jonah relief, the worm took the relief from him, and God is helping Jonah to see the depth of his request by giving him this life lesson. Now, you would think that that is, would be enough for Jonah to, to understand, but, but God continues to teach. Verse 8 says, when the sun came up, God appointed, there's the third time this is used, appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. I mean, when we go to the God's woodshed of learning, he teaches us. I think of Hebrews chapter 12 where, where it's for our benefit to be taught by the disciplining hand of God, especially if we are thinking wrongly about him. And here our, our Lord is doing that. He's, he's bringing this from his own hand. The wind is used to break Jonah of his stubborn wishes to destroy Nineveh. You think about it, I mean, his end result of all this is that, you know, he's given up on Nineveh. He, now, he wants to die. He sees that as better for him than living. And then I love what's coming next. A divine challenge to his wrong thoughts. Verse 9 says, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah responds, and he, he said, I, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. God engages Jonah and asks him another question to bring out his wrong understanding, and often God does that, does he not? We think it should go a certain way, and yet in, in the truth of God's word, it, it pierces our mind, or he brings people in our lives, and, and, and it starts dismantling our false thinking. I don't know about you, but it's easy to evaluate Jonah's rebellion and disciplinary actions going on here by God and, and saying, you know what, I think I would learn a lot sooner. But how often do we plow in our own misunderstanding thinking it's right and better 
than what God's Word says. Jonah foolishly opens his mouth, which, by the way, when it comes to God and you're wrestling with Him about His eternal Word, it's best for you to shut up. Jonah says, I have every right to be angry because the plant is dead, so I might as well die as well. All that sets the zinger for God to to come and pierce Jonah's heart. And it ends. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? I mean, the Lord's point is this, that Jonah's experience of the plan that God created and gave him shade was completely out of the the kindness of God's character. God chose to give Jonah the plant. And God delivered on that plant. And of course, Jonah was greatly pleased. And what God was pressing on Jonah's heart was that you, Jonah, you want justice. I'll show you justice. I'll send a worm, destroy that plant so that you understand that when you look at a city, how much far better is that there's 120,000 souls that are saved than your convenience of having air conditioning. It's kind of... Kind of laughable, I guess. Guess what happened this week in the Morton household? The air conditioning went out. And as you're studying a passage like this, I'm thinking to myself, where's the worm? What do I got to learn about this? And so I smile at our Lord. He brings great humor to my own soul as we come to a, a passage like this. Jonah's complaining about a plant. And so here we, mindful when I go to bed and, and it's 80 degrees in the home, you're just, I'm smiling at the grace of mercy and the kindness of God. God presses the point, Jonah, you've experienced mercy, you've experienced my grace. Yet the hardness of your heart wants justice. And so God teaches him what's wrong with that. The issue here, as much as we look at it through the eyes of Jonah, is not that it's about Jonah or Nineveh. The issue that God is teaching us and has taught us in the book of Jonah is that God has the right to show his justice when he wants to. And God has his right to show his grace and mercy when he wants to. That's the point of Jonah. Knowing that God is sovereignly in control of of being able to show his attributes according to his timeliness, according to his purposes, knowing that all of his attributes are always good and always right and always just. When God shows his hand of justice, God is just to do that. When God is slow on his justice and shows his hand of grace and mercy, God is just to do that. And yet we live in a day and age where 
denominations are even formed on certain attributes of God that they like. God has revealed himself in completeness for us, for us to grasp at least, Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to him, but the things that are revealed are for us. And I don't know about you. I think that we can understand and rejoice in a Savior when he has shown us divine grace and mercy. Nineveh's deliverance was an act of divine mercy and grace motivated by Yahweh's compassion to the sinner. It brings it all the way around to where we are in the New Testament, living presently this side of the cross. You think about a verse that's behind Paradise Buccaneer Bay poster here. There's a verse behind there. Romans 5.8, where it clearly says this, but God demonstrates his love towards us. Why we are still yet sinners. Christ died for us. The justice of God is that any time that one person has sinned, we deserve God's condemnation, wrath, and justice. And yet God says, I'm going to love you in such a way that I'm going to send Jesus Christ to the cross to atone for your sins. Knowing that you can't earn salvation, knowing that you can't receive salvation on your own, you need a Savior, you need a Lord, and my son is the answer. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, beloved, I want to think in a shepherd's heart that everybody has received the grace and mercy, but I'd be foolish to think that. If you find yourselves playing church and, and finding yourself thinking, oh, this is a great place to be. They, they do colorful things with, with VBS and they, they have great food and great fellowship. And yet you have not received Christ as Lord and Savior. You stand in the crosshairs of God's judgment. Those are the only two places that scriptures point to. Those who are redeemed and those who are not. It's a serious question for your soul to answer. We don't get to heaven by our good looks. We don't get to heaven by our good works. We don't get to heaven because we attended church. We only receive grace and mercy because we repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Oh, as we push back from this book, I, I, I pray that we learn the lessons that we have been taught. 
I pray for more mercy in my own soul. I pray that I'm able to extend that to even my, my worst of enemies. I pray that I can see them accordingly to the divine love of God. In Christ Jesus, yes. A call to repent, yes. But in the grace of Jesus, absolutely. May that be your heart as well. Amen? Lord, thank you again for the day and for the joy of allowing our hearts be sifted by a truth, a narrative that explains your divine mercy and justice and how they're not at competing odds against one another, but they actually complement one another. We know the way of destruction. There will be many that go that way. And yet, Lord, may those who are so hell-bent on going to hell because they love their sin, may they have to jump over our witnessing souls. May we be cast in places to proclaim Christ. May we be faithful to share Christ. There are a lot of people hurting out there trying to turn to whatever they think might best accomplish their ends. But Lord, we understand. For we once saw ourselves there, we have received your grace and mercy, and may we be a proclaimer, a herald of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ that saves our souls. And so we thank you for tenderizing our hearts towards the things of, of grace and mercy. Seeing that through your eyes, knowing that justice will come like a thief in the night. And so we love you. And we thank you for our steady. And Lord willing, Lord, we look forward to today and tomorrow and the, the opportunities that will come our way to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ who has given us the grace and mercy to speak and to live in. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.